0: Laodicea's alternative. So we've seen their admonishing from Christ that they are worthless by themselves, and his offering to them of a changed spiritual situation. Uh, And we're going to look at the, how that's going to work out practically. Mark, could I have you read here?
1: Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you.
0: All right. So the intent of the Lord in this, um, in this message to Laodicea is to reprove them, to discipline them, similarly to the way that a father disciplines a child. So this is not a condemnation. This is like a, like a father saying, don't play in the street, right? He is watching a child do a dangerous thing, and he's saying, you better change what you're doing for your own safety. And how do we know this? From Proverbs 3.11 to 12, we have a similar uh, message from the Lord, and it says, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. This word phileo uh, is one of the four Greek words for love, The other one most commonly used uh, in the New Testament is agapeo, and this word phileo uh, isn't used nearly as often as agapao. Uh, This has the sense of friendship, of care, and of affection, especially in fellowship, whereas agapao is a little more neutral, though its sense is often more intense. Um, It's a desire, a care, and affection. Um, The sense is a love or a longing. So let's look at some examples of how scripture uses these. I guess first, uh, here's my slide of how they're used. People of the same mind receive this word phileo and agapao, but people of a different mind will never receive this word phileo with Christ. Uh, However, there are times where the word phileo is used with the Pharisees or the scribes, For example, when the Lord is telling them that they love the world, he's saying that they are in fellowship with the world, this phileo, but he never uses this word phileo with the unbeliever. So God's love of the unbeliever, uh, this word love is going to be agapao. Kelly, could I have you read for us?
2: I'm sorry, you say me? Yeah, sorry, Kelly. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Thank you. Uh,
0: So we remember that uh, the current ruler of this world is unfortunately not Christ, but Satan. And uh, that is spoken about in the epistles from John and in the epistles from Paul to the Corinthians, where he says that Satan is the ruler of this world. And even so, uh, Christ says that he loved the world. So he says, uh, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Why? Because God loved the world. This is Agapao. In Romans 5, 6 to 8, uh, I'll read this one. He says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So this word agapao is used for the unbeliever prior to their justification. And uh, how about this fellowship with God from John 16, 27 to 28? This one is going to shift. It's not going to be agapao. It's going to be phileo. And it says, for the father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the father. I came forth from the father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the father. This is the Lord speaking to his disciples after Judas has left. He is saying that we are in fellowship. Uh, He is going to use a different word for friend. Friend. Uh, which comes from the word love for judas when judas kisses him on the ear and he says to him friend this word friend i think is not translated well in uh, in the english because it's the least close of any of the loves in uh in greek it's basically saying acquaintance why are you are, are you betraying the lord with a kiss So, when Judas demonstrates an action of love, the Lord is essentially saying, You don't think we're in fellowship here, do you? Uh, And later on as well, um, after the resurrection, when Christ asks Peter, Do you love me? He's going to use that word agapao, and Peter is going to respond to him, Yes, Lord, I love you, phileo. Well, Peter's view of this situation is yeah we're we're in fellowship we're of the same mind we're brothers but Christ's question to him is going to be do you desire me do you desire me in the same way I desire the un uh the unsaved Uh, do you long for me this phileo is a very comfortable love So we can see God's love for believers is both phileo and agapao, but his love for the unbeliever is never phileo. It's always agapao. Uh, So he's using this word phileo with uh, the church of Laodicea. So in our three tenses of salvation, where where on the timeline would we place uh, Laodicea? I'd say just like the other seven, uh, somewhere, in justification. They might not be doing very well, or sorry, somewhere in sanctification. They might not be doing very well in overcoming the power of sin, um, but they will escape the penalty of sin. Uh, The question here in all seven of these churches is, will there be any rewards to show on the day of judgment, or will all of their works be burned up? And I think that's why he puts such an emphasis with these churches on saying, I know your deeds, I know your works. Uh, It has nothing to do with their justification um, and making it a justification issue would only serve to confuse uh, and people would be tempted to add works into their justification. But justification with the addition of works of human hands uh, cannot save only faith alone in Christ alone. So he says uh, to be zealous and to repent. This word zealous, ze-le-u, zeleo, uh, is related by a lot of Greek scholars to this word be hot earlier on, which is zestos. Uh, the word zealous in the Greek is related to this heating up. It says to be eager, to be earnest, is what this word zealous means. Uh, Similarly to hot seething or boiling. Uh, It's in the present active continual action in the Greek, which means uh, it's not over and done. It's a continual process, continue to be zealous for me. We see that at a point in their history, they were. The letter written to the Colossians, Paul is looking at this Laodicean church as in fellowship with him in the love of the Lord, they're bonded together. But similarly to Ephesus, they have let go of that love that they once had, but rather than becoming legalists, they have given up altogether on letting God rule in the church and they are making it the rule of the people. And repentance is a necessary condition of fellowship. So, let's see, Mark, could I have you read here from First John 1, 5 to 10?
1: This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. One more here. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us.
0: Thank you. so this is written, 1 John, uh, John's epistles to the, uh, to the Hebrew churches in Jerusalem, uh, saying essentially, you're not done with sin yet. You're done with the power of sin. You're done with the penalty of sin, or sorry, you're done with the penalty of sin, but your struggle against the power of sin um, is still here. That's, that's the fight of the believer is uh, to essentially crucify the old man and live to the new man. Uh, So we are crucified with Christ. We also are risen with Christ. Well, that's our position. Um, But practically, we need to live that out. As believing Christians, we are justified. Uh, We need to act in accordance with that position that we are put in the heavenlies with Christ. Uh, and the invitation. Again, this is a very controversial verse, um, often used as an evangelistic verse. Uh, We're going to see why this is not an evangelistic verse. Um, All right, so he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens to the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. Does anyone see anywhere in the context here where coming into someone's heart is mentioned. Not anywhere in the context. And if we look at the situation that's happening here, this church it has received a physical letter and they are reading it together, likely out loud in a physical location. And they're reading these words out loud. It says, I am at the door uh, knocking. If you open the door, I'll come in. This brings to my mind, Uh, Genesis 4-7, where God tells Cain, sin is at your door and it seeks to overcome you. Uh, There's a couple different uh, views on what that means. One view is that it is metaphorically waiting outside his door that uh, it may overcome him. Another one is that uh, the word sin which is the same as sin offering in Hebrew, um, was actually physically outside Cain's door saying, Cain, you offered me a bad sacrifice. You have the opportunity to approach me with a proper sacrifice. I've brought a lamb to your door. Go and sacrifice a proper um, sacrifice. That's one interpretation of that, but it brings to mind uh, this situation here where there is an opportunity physically standing at the door waiting to come in. We understand that Christ in his bodily form is not waiting outside this church of Laodicea, uh, but he is in spirit just as he is holding the seven stars in his hands and walking among the seven lampstands. Christ seeks to enter into this church. So he says, I will come into him. uh, the English teacher in me loves to point out that there is a space between the prepositions in and to. And that is very important here because uh, a lot of people put that word together in their mind where it is not actually put together in the Greek. In fact, I've made them bold and underlined up here. kai es, oh, uh, eis pros auton. This ace is, uh, In and this pros is to. It would not be confusing in the Greek uh, that there is no entering inside of uh, metaphorically here. In fact, it's an enter or it is an entering inside of, but not into the person. It is a entering inside and standing before. Uh, This ace elusomai means to enter, uh, to enter, especially a house, to visit, to pay a visit. And the sense is always entering a physical location. And pros uh, has the sense of to or toward on the side of, in the direction of, from, at, or to. It's always directional. Uh, so let's look at how it's used elsewhere in scripture. In Mark six twenty four to 25, when Herod has uh, married his brother, his dead brother, Philip's widow, uh, Herodotus, Herodotus, Herodotus. Uh, She seeks the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And uh, let's see, Kelly, could I have you read this from Mark 6? Not the Greek, just the English.
2: Oh, good. (laughs) And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in in a hurry to the king and asked saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter.
0: Okay, so who's confused here about whether or not the daughter of Herodias has come into the king's heart or has come before his throne? I don't think it's very confusing to me, but it's admittedly A challenging verse when we get to Revelation. So let's look at another example here. Acts 11.3. This is uh, Peter who has dined with the uh, uncircumcised and the Jews are all up in arms about it because uh, you can't eat with the uncircumcised. Uh, So he says, and when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, did he eat with them inside their hearts? I think he was physically there sitting with them and eating with them. And that's the problem that, uh, that these Jews have, that these Messianic Christians have taken with Peter, taking company with Gentiles and eating with them. Again, we're going to look at eating in a second. It's, it's a symbol of fellowship. You eat with those you're in fellowship with. All right, so here we do get an enter inside of, and even still, it's going to be a physical location. So we've got the same verb, eis thomen, this one's passive. Um, And then we get a different preposition, ace, this is to enter inside of. So it says, the spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me and we entered the man's house. Uh, So this one just takes away the sense of standing before someone. There is no additional prepositional phrase with an object. Uh, so here's a paraphrase that I did, looking at the Greek of uh, how it reads in very rough translation. "Idu," uh, which is often translated behold, just means listen, pay attention. I've got an important message for you. He says, I stand at the door and knock, his present condition, if anyone or someone hears. This word hears is a subjunctive, meaning that it's possible that it happens. It's possible that it doesn't happen. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door to the church, uh, physical location, I will come in to the church beside him. I will enter into this church beside him and will dine with him he with me. And this sense of dining is a fellowship image, not salvational. Uh, Proof texts on this would be Mark 2.16 or John 13.23 or 25. Jesus eats with the tax collectors and those that the Pharisees have deemed unclean. And the Lord uh, basically has no time for the Pharisees wishing that he would dine with them because he's not in fellowship with them. Uh, They are not of the same mind, whereas he has come to save the lost and the needing. Uh, He's not going to be in fellowship with the Pharisees who are not approaching him uh, in faith. Additionally, in John 13, 23 to 25, this is the last supper with Christ where they're eating together And John is actually laying on the lap of Christ. Uh, So in 23 and 25, uh, this this dinner is a very intimate um, situation. They're laying down. Their sandals are off, which is in Hebrew um, culture. That is people who are in fellowship together. So again, we have our promise to the overcomer. And remember, these promises, we're taking the view, or at least I am, uh, that these promises are to the entire church, not specifically the Church of Laodicea, nor specific Christians who are more virtuous than others. Those Those are two popular views. I take the view that the overcomers are all who are justified in Christ. The two promises here is I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, and uh, we looked, this was a promise also given to Thyatira, so again not unique to Laodicea. Uh, but where does this idea of sitting down on a throne come from? Uh, in Matthew nineteen twenty-eight to twenty-nine, we see that this is the understanding of the disciples. Uh, For their inheritance, which understanding they got from Christ. Kelly, could I have you read this for us?
2: And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or farms for my namesake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life.
0: Thank you. So we see that this is the the promise given to the 12 disciples. Then it says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or farms for my namesake. This is describing uh, what the disciples did when they left their families and their occupations in order to serve the Lord in discipleship. And this takes many different forms in the modern Christian life, um, especially in the absence of Christ in bodily form, where it's essentially telling us that those who are about their ministries, that the Lord has given them um, and not an official ministry, but the ministry of your life. If your life is exemplary of a disciple, uh, This has the idea of rewards behind it. So uh, we could use the term to those who much is given, much is expected. Well, the obverse of that is those who prove faithful uh, with these things, more will be given. Uh, One of the parables of the Lord, uh, where the three servants who are each given minus, and uh, the one with 10 makes 10 more, the one with five makes five more, and the one with one buries it. He makes no more. Uh, well, his reward in heaven is not going to be as much. He's not stripped of his salvation, but he is not going to be receiving that same quantity and quality of reward. Uh, but this is also the promise to the, uh, to the believer. Uh, this is not from Matthew. This is from Revelation 2. Uh, speaking to the church of Thyatira, he says, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my father. So this sense of rulership to the, excuse me, to the overcomer. So let's look at the millennial reign this millennial reign means the thousand year rule of Christ over the physical earth. Uh, Kelly, could I have you read this?
2: Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image. And had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection.
0: He's saying that essentially these are, these go hand in hand the resurrection of the dead with the rapture of the church. Uh, because there are those members of the church who have died already as well there are the jews who died in faith looking forward to christ and uh, even those prior to the law who didn't have a full revelation of who christ was they only had that promise from genesis 3 5 that there would be a seed of eve who would uh, crush the head of the serpent those looking forward uh would also be resurrected uh for a lack of a for uh to avoid confusion simultaneously or a moment before the rapture of the church Uh, there is a very small resurrection that happened at the time of christ's resurrection and that's found in the book of matthew where it says and also some others came out of their graves Um, and this uh, is in keeping with um, the jewish sense of harvest where there's a first grains offering um, so along with Christ there was a handful more and let's see the comment in the in the chat room says so the ones alive who got raptured go first. then the other people that had died normal are resurrected after I got confused. Um, it's the other way around. Um, the people who have died first are resurrected and then the rapture of the church but I don't believe there is much time at all in fact, probably not even an Uh, quantifiable time between these i think it's essentially the rapture of the church and the resurrection of those dead in christ happen at the same time because the church and those resurrected are going to return with christ in chapter 19 Um, they'll be behind him as he returns uh, to have victory over the antichrist so we need to be in heaven at that point uh, with him so again that's looking at context to try to understand the situation um, I said the church is conspicuously absent after this from the book of Revelation uh, it causes some problems for us in well especially because we are the church and we want to know exactly what's going on with the church but essentially what happens in the book of Revelation from chapter 4 to 18 doesn't have anything to do with the church um, because we won't be here so that's, that's in the book of Revelation where we where we place the rapture prior to uh, the tribulation, where we place the um, rapture and the resurrection of the dead comes from the epistles, such as um, the two epistles to the Thessalonians. Uh, again, I don't know if I'm answering your question well here.
2: Yeah, I think you got just a little question here confusing when it says in verse five, the rest of the dead Mm -hmm. did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection.
0: Yeah. And I think that's probably because I I cut this verse out of context here. Uh, So if you go and read Revelation 20, hopefully that would clear that up. Uh, But I'm taking all of these Christians that are mentioned in verse four as the entire body of faith. Uh, that those who have died and that those who were raptured um, are all included in this group. And then the rest of the dead is going to be those who were not resurrected because those who died not uh, without faith are not going to be resurrected prior to the thousand years. They will be resurrected after uh, in order to share in uh, Satan's damnation, because they have chosen him as their authority over God, similarly to Adam, uh, we saw in Genesis 3, where God asks him, basically, uh, under whose authority um, did you make that um, logical jump? Uh, does that help?
2: Yeah, sure does. Thanks.
0: Okay, sorry. Uh, yeah, I should probably explain those things better without rushing through. Uh, all right, let's see. All right, so the theme of a kingdom uh, is probably one of the most prominent themes in, uh, in the Bible, and it's, it's one of the first uh, things mentioned in Scripture in Genesis 1.26, and it's, it's actually phrased as a purpose statement for the creation, so it says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This was God's purpose for man, that they rule over his creation as a mediatory king. God remains on his throne over the universe, but he is granted a microcosm of that in the earth as the creation to mankind. Uh, And one possible explanation for this is so that we can understand his glory, um, that we have just this little earth to manage, and uh, we can't even last a few days, in my opinion. Uh, Adam and Eve, I mean, in my mind, they just did a dead run right, for that tree of knowledge of good, the knowledge of good and evil. So we understand the weight of his position and how utterly different he is from us, Um, that he is the creator. We are the creature. Uh, But uh, this purpose of rulership of a kingdom um, is his plan, even from creation. And that's what we're seeing restored in the book of revelation. He is restoring that kingdom that he intended. Um, Only now there's going to be a perfect man to rule over that kingdom who is Christ the Lord. Uh, this is a helpful, um, helpful little bullet point list um, from Jeremy Thomas of Spokane Bible Church. Uh, and he notes the purpose in creation. He says God's purpose is the kingdom. His strategy is through covenants. These are um, these are either promises that God makes to man or contracts that he makes with man, such as the Mosaic law, uh, where he lays out his expectations, or he lays out to man his promises that cannot fail. Uh, so through these documents that are written in legal language, uh, God is establishing his, um, the foundation for what will become his kingdom in the future. Uh, the responsibilities, there's an old word for this is dispensations, a better word for this is God's household, his economy, or his stewardship. Uh, This is the responsibilities that he gives to man to govern. Um, Ever since we gave up our authority to rule this earth um, to Satan, when we put him as our head rather than God as our head uh, at the fall, uh, God has to uh, to govern his household in creative ways, uh, to say it lightly. Uh, For man to uh, experience their uh, process of salvation and what is necessary for the Lord to bring um, salvation to them, uh, most of these stewardships are uh, functioning as protecting the seed that comes from the woman through Noah, through Abraham, through David, finally into Christ, Um, these stewardship responsibilities of man, uh, God used to bring about uh, Christ, who is the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head. God's means is salvation. The way that he will restore this kingdom is by saving mankind. We saw that in Genesis 3.21, where he clothed the man and the woman uh, in animal skins, and his ultimate purpose or his goal is his glory. All right, we're, we're almost done here, I promise. Uh, let's see. Mark, could I have you read this? This is a quote by Charles Ryrie. He wrote the Ryrie Study Bible back in the, must have been the 60s. Uh, and this is uh, Christ's purpose in the kingdom or for the kingdom.
1: Why is an earthly kingdom necessary? Did he not receive his inheritance when he was raised and exalted in heaven? Is not his present rule his inheritance? Why does there need to be an earthly kingdom? Because he must be triumphant in the same arena where he was seemingly defeated. His rejection by the rulers of this world was on this earth, 1 Corinthians 2.8. His exaltation must be on this, uh, must also be on this earth. And so it shall be when he comes again to rule this world in righteousness. He has waited long for his inheritance. Soon he shall receive it.
0: So this kingdom that we refer to as the millennial kingdom, the millennial reign of Christ, uh, this is the restored creation over which Christ will rule as the second Adam where Adam failed to rule creation Christ will rule faithfully in the millennial kingdom and thus uh, conquer uh, Satan. Uh, The, yeah, there's more we're going to talk about next week. Uh, We're going to look at uh, Noah's flood, but also uh, some of the themes from Genesis that all uh, uh, culminate in Revelation Uh, because Genesis 1 through 11 is really the overture to the symphony of scripture, where the themes all present themselves in Genesis 1 through 11, and they're drawn out uh, more completely in the rest of scripture. But just about everything uh, in scripture hangs on the truth of of Genesis 1 through 11. And if you can understand those, uh, you have a framework that you can build the rest of scripture on. And this is one of them is Christ's kingdom purpose or God's kingdom purpose for man to rule a kingdom of this earth. Only Christ, the God man, can do that successfully. All right, so here's our invocation, which uh, is a call to all the church that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's a direct address to you as well, uh, that this is for you uh, to listen to.